Welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast, the official podcast of Unstoppable Domains. Join us each week to hear from leading experts in the exciting new fields of blockchain, cryptocurrency, and the decentralized web, where we talk about the future of the internet and what that means for humans like us. Not only will this podcast help you sound super smart around your friends, but you'll also learn how you can become a pioneer in the space and help lead the charge towards a more decentralized web. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Unstoppable Podcast. I'm Diana Chen, your host, and I'm joined today by Matthew Gold, my co-host, also CEO and founder of Unstoppable Domains, and our guest, Devin Finzer, co-founder and CEO of OpenSea. Welcome, Devin. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for being here. To start us off, Devin, I'm just wondering, how did you get interested in crypto in the first place? I got interested in crypto in 2017. I was working as an engineering manager at a company called Credit Karma in San Francisco. And there was just a ton of excitement and hype around cryptocurrencies. I'd followed the space peripherally earlier and, you know, bought a little Bitcoin, that type of thing. But in 2017, you know, it was really the talk of the town in San Francisco. Um, and so like a lot of people, I kind of went down the crypto rabbit hole um, at that time, you could actually go to physical meetups. So I went to some physical crypto meetups, met a lot of people, actually met um, Brad, uh, another member of the Unstoppable Domains team, and just started learning as much as I possibly could. Um, and eventually, you know, I think once you get to a certain point, you kind of get to the point of no return um, where you're like, okay, I need to, you know, leave my job and start a company in this space. I don't know exactly what I'm going to do, but uh, it's going to be something crypto related. <laughs> uh, and that was kind of the position I was in, um, in late 2017. And my co-founder and I, uh, my co-founder Alex and I, uh, applied to Y Combinator with a idea in the space that eventually kind of morphed into what, uh, became OpenSea. Um, so yeah, that's kind of my, you know, maybe slightly cliche, uh, background in space. That's awesome. So we're going to dive into the open sea stuff, Y Combinator, all of that good stuff. But just to backtrack a little bit, when you first got interested in crypto in 2017, other than going to all these meetups and meeting people in the space, what were some other ways that you learned about crypto? Well, reading the white papers was a big one at that time, less of a thing these days. Um, joining a lot of Facebook and Telegram groups, uh, kind of uh, reaching out to different projects. I think I actually applied to a couple projects just as an engineer um, and got to talk with like Nadav from Dharma. Um, so that can be a really good way to, if you're, you know, on the fence or if you're sort of at a non-crypto company but are interested in getting in the crypto space, just going and applying and even, and, you know, feeling out, um, you know, what what options are there uh, to get deeper into the space. Uh, that That was really um, a good avenue for me. Um, and then also just kind of learning the fundamentals. So uh, diving really deep into uh, how Bitcoin works, how Ethereum works, and, you know, tinkering with uh, Solidity and smart contracts was a big thing. So getting your hands dirty. Nowadays, um, there's more to kind of get your hands dirty with on the application side. So back then, like, there wasn't actually a lot you could do with your crypto, you could kind of like, buy it and sell it on an exchange. And some people transferred it to their MetaMask, but very few people actually did. Now you can transfer it to a crypto wallet. You can buy an unstoppable domain. You can go and sell it on OpenSea. You can swap your uh, ETH to die on Uniswap. There's just so much you can do. So it's actually, I think, a, an easier 
time to get involved in the crypto space because there's more of a, a visceral feeling around uh, the applications that exist. You can also just check your crypto prices every morning, right? Like that's a that's right. a core component. Well, you could do that in 2017. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think that's how most people get in. So one thing I wanted to actually ask you about is uh, when you came in, you actually ended up in a non-financial uh, use case for blockchain, which I actually think is quite innovative and extremely innovative back in 2017. And would like to know, uh, you know wh what kind of pointed you down that path versus others? Was it just fortuitous? I'm actually kind of curious how, how that origin happened. Yeah. Um, well, I think I'd always been really excited about more just general consumer applications. I used, I, my first job was at Pinterest where I was on the growth team and I really, I was really fascinated by, um, kind of the, the birth of, I mean, birth of Facebook and social and Twitter and just all of these interesting applications that were people were using. And I, I was just never like super deep into the finance world. So I didn't have a ton of expertise there. Um, and crypto kitties was really the, you know, inspiration for a lot of people who were crypto curious, sort of saw the vision of web three beyond just sort of the financial use cases of crypto, but were uncertain about like what was actually something that you could go and build and crypto kitties what was awesome about that project was they just went and they took the technology that existed which was a little rough around the edges it was hard to build solidity contracts it was hard to use metamask but they did go and they launched this application and you know they they put a lot of blood sweat and tears into it um and so it gave you this sense of like you know these are the sorts of things you could build that aren't just around trading and finance um, and then from there, like what was interesting is right after CryptoKitties, all these people kind of who were looking at CryptoKitties had all these cool ideas. Um, so one idea was, you know, now you own your digital cat. Could you like create other sort of gameplay experiences on top of it? So someone built a kitty racing application where you could go and you could race your CryptoKitties. There was another one, actually one of our, um, first engineers here at OpenSea built kitty hats, which was sort of the first uh, layer two game on top of CryptoKitties. So you could accessorize your CryptoKitties with hats. So another thing that kind of sparked my interest was I'm, I'd actually never been a huge gamer. I, you know, I, I did some gaming growing up, but I wasn't like deep in the gaming ecosystem. And I just thought like, you know, I realized kind of naively how cool like games were for, for like, I kind of like got a, a rejuvenated interest in, um, like these really fun applications that look kind of like games. So it was kind of a combination of factors, I would say. Uh, so I'm going to back. So there was a lot mm -hmm. there. So I'm going to unpack it and back yeah. it up a little bit. So for people who don't know, a, 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 a crypto kitty is a like a, kind of a piece of art on the blockchain. And I'll let Devin here give us a better you know explanation here in a second. Uh, and when I was talking to him about non-financial use cases, you know, everyone thinks crypto and blockchain, they just immediately think, you know, buy Bitcoin, number go up. Uh, but there's actually this whole world of things that are happening on the blockchain that have nothing to do with that whatsoever. And um, the category here, and I think it's easier for users to think about this is, or for people out there listening, it's like art. Just imagine art being out there. And the very first um, implementation of like this digital art that got really popular was a, a game about cats called Crypto Kitties. And you could essentially buy a cat on the blockchain. And the joke was that cats are everywhere on the internet. Now they've come to the blockchain. Uh, and this is the Crypto Kitties thing that uh, Devin was just talking about. 
And then the cool part was, is you had this piece of art that was a cat on the blockchain. And then you could have that cat and you could take another cat and you could cross the two cats together and make a third cat. Right. And so you also had kind of like this, like Pokemon type feel to it. Uh, and these are called NFTs, non-fungible tokens. Uh, and a lot of it you're seeing is like art on the blockchain. So we've gone from cats, uh, Devin, at the, very be- at the very beginning, and now you're saying you're seeing hats for cats, uh, race cars, like like racing cats. Uh, what are some of the things that are like popping up, like maybe more, more recently um, that you're excited about? Uh, tell us what's going on in the space today, because that's like three years ago, hard to imagine. And some of those cats are actually doing quite well today. Like the original cat, I've, I've seen them uh, on OpenSea itself. Yeah. Well, so one, one really interesting thing to point out is a lot of the, or, or a subset of the items that were popular three years ago are actually experiencing a renaissance today. So, um, uh, the first project actually to make what you described as a non-fungible token or NFT was something called CryptoPunks, which was a precursor to CryptoKitties. And CryptoPunks were the 10,000 uh, sort of very, very simple uh, representations of a punk. Uh, so there's like alien punks, there's like Afropunk, um, but they're just these really simple pieces of art. Play off a of- a play off of cyberpunks, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and they were given out for free, 10,000 of them. Um, and people held on to them and they're still today on the blockchain. And what's crazy is that now they're selling for tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, and they've become really this digital antique. So what's interesting about these assets is they can actually um, accumulate value over time and the longevity of them is is often very different than what you'd see with like a traditional video game where you know you buy the item you play the game and then when the game dies it's no longer interesting so that being said of course there were a lot of projects that came after cryptokitties that did phase out so there were like your crypto puppies of the world your crypto llamas um that type of thing that you know they were kind of knockoffs of cryptokitties and um it, you know didn't end up kind of taking off um but in terms of what other things Oh, did you ask something, Matthew? Yeah, well, I was just going to no. say, like, uh, it's it's like a digital baseball card, is how I explained it to my dad, mm-hmm. uh, except you don't have to worry about losing it at your parents' house. And now we're actually getting digital baseball cards, right? Like, they have, like, digital NBA. Or do they, do they or soccer players or something? You probably mm-hmm. know better than I do. That's actually popping up. Yeah, so recently, um, uh, Dapper Labs, which is the company that created CryptoKitties, um, partnered with the NBA to release a product called NBA Top Shot, um, which is essentially uh, digital trading cards on the blockchain. They're actually on a different blockchain than Ethereum, which is where most of the NFT action has happened so far. Um, but yeah, you can, and, and there are a couple other um, kind of trading card companies as well. There's uh, So Rare doing it for soccer. Um, there's, you know, these sort of like Magic the Gathering type uh, applications where you own this, this digital card that you play inside of a game. Um, so really a lot of the physical things that people love to collect are coming online as digital and they're sort of absorbing the best of both worlds. They have the physical properties where, you know, you can't tamper with them after you create them. Um, and you can trade them on like, you know, with physical things, you can kind of do whatever you want with them. You could go and throw it in the trash. You could gift it to a friend. You could go and sell it on eBay. Um, whereas with digital stuff, in the old world, you couldn't really do all of those things. You could have them inside of one specific context, but you couldn't go and like 
you know, trade them outside of that context. Um, so these digital, these crypto assets, these NFTs combine the best of both. They have the physical property of immutability, but then they have the digital property of being programmable and, you know, basically zero cost to produce and transfer. Um, so a lot of the, uh, you know, it's, it's basically the best of, of everything. <laughs> well, that's the best, of, the best of everything. Easy sell. Um, so a couple of questions. I'm actually going to pass this back uh, to Diana right now, right now. So the people trying to get into the space, Devin, this is kind of the pitch. Like, how do you sell? Uh, and I like for people to have something to do other than go buy cryptocurrency and then lose all their money trading it, which is what seems to be most people's rite of passage. So there's a lot of other things you guys could do out there. So, um, you know, like Devin, if you were going to pitch Diana on, you know, picking up a cheap NFT, something she could get for like five or 10 bucks or something, and then playing around with it, like, you know, how do you, how would you explain this, this like digital art, digital collectible NFT market to uh, someone like Diana who has never done anything with it before? Uh, you know, how would you get them hyped? Sort of to add on, add on to that, Devin, I think a lot of people, when they think about crypto and blockchain, they think about either financial uses or gaming uses, right? And you said you didn't come from a financial background. That wasn't your first use case in the crypto world. And you weren't much of a gamer either until you discovered CryptoKitties. So if you're talking to somebody who's, you know, not really super into the finance aspect of it, and they're not into gaming, how would you explain all of this to them and pitch them on it and get them hyped? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it definitely does help if you're interested in gaming because you're sort of a like you're already very digitally native. You're used to buying digital assets and it's not too much of a stretch to go and buy a blockchain based game item. So if you're not interested in gaming, you're not interested in finance. Um, I do think that there's a really compelling um, story around digital art that's really just at its infancy, but is definitely starting to evolve. So if you think about like, why do you buy a physical piece of art? You're not buying it for the raw materials of that piece, right? You're buying it because there's a story around the piece of art and you know that you have property rights over that piece of art, right? If, if you buy the original Mona Lisa and you know, not a, a regular consumer is not going to go and make <laughs> that type of purchase. Easy. But if you buy the original, you know, that that's the only Mona Lisa out there. And, you know, you can take a screenshot of it. You could, uh, you know, take a photo of it. You could reprint it. You could get almost an exact replica, but it's not the original. And um, there's, there's no sort of status and there's no excitement around um owning it if it if it's not the original so that that concept um or that idea of digital property rights just hasn't existed um in in the digital world and so if i wanted to say that um you know i own this piece of digital art uh how would i actually prove that um i could you know send it to you i could send the jpeg to you but then you could send it to 10 other friends and it's unclear like who is the original owner where did this come from is it the original or is it just a, a copy um that's what blockchain introduces it's this um ledger that anyone can read from all sorts of different applications are pointing to the same exact source of truth um and so on the blockchain, you can have a piece of digital art and be the only owner of it and make it very clear that um, you're the original collector um, and make it very clear who the original creator of that was. Now, it's still a little bit of a stretch, I think, right? Because it's like, okay, you own this digital thing. Like, what are, you know, where are you going to display it, right? Because with the physical uh, piece of art, 
you typically hang it on a wall, put it in a museum, all of these things. And that's where I think a lot of the infrastructure is still being built out. But um, there's an emergence of um, both just simple websites for you to display your art and curate it. And then also things like virtual worlds where you can create an actual like VR museum of your art. And again, only, only if you are the actual owner of that piece can you display it inside of your virtual house, right? Um, and, the, and the virtual worlds can respect that in different ways. So like there could be a virtual world where you can display something and you don't have to be the owner. There could be a virtual world where you do have to be the owner, but that ownership means something in these various contexts and all the different um, applications are reading from the same thing. So it gets a little bit technical uh, as you as you carry the story on, but- um, Oh, I, I love it. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> well, I think, I think Devin, like the overarching theme of what you just said is like, ownership and control, how you can own all of these things. Uh -huh. And that's something that drew me in when I first learned about this from Matt is the whole concept of digital ownership. And so for me, like I'm not an art collector, you know, I'm not a gamer, uh, or none of that. So I'm not buying digital art or buying crypto kitties or anything like that. But I am somebody who's, you know, a content creator and I've, I've got followers and I work with brands and products on Instagram and social media. And so I think, I think this is super interesting for any content creator, influencer, anyone that has any sort of digital presence or digital, uh, you know, business or way of making money online, because if you can own all of these things, that means you're not at the liberty of Instagram or whatever, um, company that you're using to get your products or your brand out there to potentially shut down your, your brand and your platform for, you know, no reason other than you sign terms and conditions with them and you abide by their rules. So I think like the overarching theme of that ownership, I think has so many applications and so many use cases that can really be interesting to just about anybody out there, like not just people interested in finance or gaming or, you know, digital art. Yeah. So how do I, how do I buy one for five bucks? I'm looking for my, I'm working for my first, my first NFT that, and I, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to bet the house on it. Uh, you have any suggested, uh, maybe projects that are tailored to, um, earlier users or is the original CryptoKitty still a good spot to, uh, start if you're trying to, if you just want to, if you just want to have one on your crypto wallet so that you can, uh, you know, get your feet wet. Yeah. If you want to just buy one NFT, um, for like a very small amount, um, you know, you can go to our marketplace, OpenSea and, sort by lowest price and <laughs> just look for something really cheap. Now there's Done. no guarantee that you're going to be able to like resell that. It could just be, you know. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're talking about just doing this for fun. Yeah. Research. But uh, yeah, you could then have an NFT. Um, you can also, the other thing you can do nowadays is um, you can uh, mint your own NFTs, right? So there's really nothing stopping you from going and, um, yeah, we have a simple tool for this on our site where you can go and create what we call a collection. Um, and what we've done actually that's interesting is we allow you to sort of mint this NFT without paying the usual fee you would pay on the Ethereum network, which is called a gas fee. Um, and you can kind of create the NFT and then put it on sale, see if anyone wants it. Um, without having to pay that fee. And then the buyer will actually pay that fee. So one of the kind of tricky things with the state of the Ethereum world at the moment, and one of the things that we're working on at OpenSea um, is that uh, things are rather expensive. So everything that you kind of do on the network costs a fee 
paid in Ether. Um, and that can be a bit, bit of a barrier to entry to someone who doesn't want to necessarily have to pay every time they're buying or pay every time they're moving something around. Um, so those things are getting better. Uh, but yeah, for now, I think the you know a good place to start is um, either buying something that's really cheap just to see what it's like or uh, creating your own. Yeah. So side note there, uh, the way that I like to explain scaling problems on the blockchain to uh, my dad and my friends and family, it's like dial up in the early 90s. And everyone remembers when they had like the 14K dial up and that thing was like super slow. So we're at like the 14K dial up phase of the Internet. And, you know, we're broadband is going to roll out slowly. Right. And it's going to happen in some places first and then it's going to happen in some other places. And it and it. Now, that was a lot harder than it took like 20 years before now everyone has fast internet at their house. Uh, but we have to do the same thing on the blockchain. It just it's going to be um, mostly software because we don't have to lay, you know, fiber down. So it will be it won't take 25 years to do that, but it is going to take three to five years to make blockchains faster. And so one of the criticisms that people level against blockchains uh, and blockchain products and blockchain companies all the time, and I'm sure you get this at OpenSea, just like we do it on Sable Domains, they're like, how is any normal person, you know, ever going to use this thing? It's too slow or like the fit, transaction fees are too expensive. So for those people out there, I would just say it's a process and we, you know, uh, technology has done the same thing before where something was very slow and it had to be made faster. And like, you've seen that with processors, with, you know, storage for memory, with bandwidth. So, uh, I, yeah, I agree with Devin that this is going to be solved. Um, and it's just, people are working on it right now. So we're actually seeing some things in the space, um, which I think is pretty cool. So Devin and I could jam out on scaling for like an hour and a half here, Diana. So we won't, we will save that for a future discussion. I want to make sure you got, um, any other, any other things you want to walk Devin through before we got moving here. I guess another thing sort of on the same topic of challenges that we're facing in the crypto or blockchain world right now, what do you see as some of the ma major challenges that are preventing, quote unquote, normal people from getting into the crypto space? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. So I think the, the analogy that Matthew made of, of dial up Internet is a perfect one. Um, and I think when you the other thing to remember is when you started using the internet way back when there was like all of this special stuff that you had to install on your computer to even just get on the internet. And we're in a similar stage in blockchain. There's all of this special stuff that you have to do this black magic as it were to, you know, get started on, uh, something like OpenSea, Right. Um, so you have to get yourself a wallet. Um, you got to get yourself cryptocurrency, which usually involves, um, going to, an exchange or, you know, there's, there's some things that make it a little bit easier, but traditionally it's been a bit of a process. Um, and then you have to get your cryptocurrency into that wallet. Um, and then oftentimes you'll have to submit a transaction and maybe that transaction will, um, not be, uh, priced <laughs> high enough to get through to the blockchain. So there's all these things that can kind of go wrong as you're getting set up. Um, what's pretty crazy, though, is that, you know, right now in the NFT space, especially with artists, they're really excited about like this stuff and they're and they're just going and doing it. So um, there are, you know, experiences that abstract all of this away from the user and, and like get them started earlier. And I think that's great for bringing in new users. Um, but then to but to experience kind of the real magic of the blockchain and kind of some of the interoperability benefits that you get when you have things in a, um, in your action, in your own wallet, like something like MetaMask, 
uh, you do have to kind of go through these hurdles. Um, but people are excited enough about the promise of digital ownership that they that they are going through those hurdles, which is, I think, a really strong sign for for the space going forward. Um, uh, let's give a shout out to some of those artists. Do you actually? I know I know Three Lao is one of them. Uh, yeah. So like that, there's someone pushing uh, the boundaries for uh, for blockchain and digital art. So shout out to Three Lao there. Do you have any? I actually don't have a list in front of me. Do you have any? You want? Let's shout some artists out here if you've got a few, Devin. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I'll shout out some ones that aren't as like famous as I believe it's pronounced Blau, or so I've heard. Uh, um, but uh, so some folks who are uh, sort of have been with the NFT space for a really long time um, and are some of my favorite like crypto native artists. Uh, there's Josie. So she's um, an artist who does a lot of like crypto specific painting. Uh, both physical and digital paintings and, and digital art pieces. Um, she's been selling work on OpenSea since maybe maybe even 2018, I think, um, early 2018. Um, and then another uh, guy who we met with way back when, really just when CryptoKitties had taken off, is a guy by the name of John Orion Young, who um, creates this very, very interesting, very cool VR art. Um, and he does a lot of stuff. He, he kind of <laughs> is sort of what you might call like a kind of independent artist in that he doesn't go through some of the uh, platforms for creating crypto art, like the super rare. Uh, so super rare is kind of a, a platform where you can mint art through their system. There's Maker's Place, there's uh, Rarible, there's all of these different art platforms. He actually has deployed his own smart contracts and even written code um, to uh, implement interesting pricing features into how people buy and sell his art. Um, so he's really like pushing the boundaries of what can be done and is always coming up with a lot of really interesting projects. Um, but yeah, there's, I mean, if you look at kind of the emerging um, crypto art space, there's just tons of people who are doing interesting things. And then I guess maybe the most famous recent one was um, Beeple, who's this digital artist who has been doing, I believe, a new digital art piece every day. Um, and he sold uh, a set of digital artworks on a site called Nifty Gateway, which is um, another of these art platforms um, for, I think it was $3 million. Um, and, you know, it was just, you know, suddenly he was able to really effectively monetize digital art that he was that previously, you know, wasn't um, really a big source of income for him. Yeah, I would say that's one thing that uh, crypto is really good at is uh, being able to take uh, anything that you want to create on the blockchain and then plugging it in because it's super composable. So like yep. I've seen lending against NFTs. I saw like a pretend indexed fund or something for NFTs, which I thought was pretty crazy. And then I saw like fractional ownership. And this is actually, I think, a pretty big company now is doing this for consumers. So you can buy like, you know, one ten thousandth of a piece of Monet or something. And the thing that I tell people is like, this market, like all of these markets are going to multiply by, there gonna be a thousand X more people participating in these things over the next decade. Because there's only a couple hundred thousand users actively uh, interacting with these blockchains every day. So it's like, it really, we are that early. And then 100% of all the complaints I get, they sound just like the complaints from like 1992. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, it's the exact, I'm like, I'm not going to fall for it. Like I've seen how this plays out. So mm -hmm. I'm not fooled. Uh, <laughs> one other thing I want to point out to people who may not have known this, but you actually wrote the NFT Bible, 
which we will plug in the show notes here. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm not going to make you break that down because I think it's pretty long, but Devin is actually an expert here. So if you're actually looking to learn more about NFTs, uh, I would point you to his NFT Bible. Um, and I think that's a good place for you to go uh, learn more about digital art. Um, and I think that, you know, read literally the NFT Bible yourself uh, to get an idea of where this market uh, is and where we could be going. Shameless plug. <laughs> Thank you. I want to get into more of OpenSea and how you got the idea for that. So you said back in 2017, you first learned about crypto, you got really deep into crypto and you knew that you had to, you know, create something in the crypto space. So why OpenSea of all things that you could have created in the crypto space? Like what inspired OpenSea? Right. So um, as I said, we we were very interested in CryptoKitties and we sort of joined a lot of the CryptoKitties communities. I remember I was like, um, at some concert and just like constantly checking the CryptoKitties Reddit because it was just, there's all this weird stuff going on. And I just thought it was fascinating. Um, and what we saw was a lot of people um, in the gaming space and sort of the consumer tech space, crypto space intersecting around this idea of a non fungible token, which was pioneered by the CryptoKitties team. Um, and starting to build new non-fungible tokens. So we kind of thought that a natural um, piece of infrastructure for that emerging ecosystem would be a place where you could buy and sell your non-fungible tokens. Um, and so when we started, uh, it was kind of almost a silly project because uh, all we had on our marketplace was CryptoKitties. So it was really just uh, an eBay for this one specific thing, which was this one <laughs> game uh, where you could trade around these digital cats. And and not and not at first, not a lot of people really used it because CryptoKitties kind of had their own marketplace. Um, and that was where most of the trading happened. But what was exciting was um, as new games came online, um, you know, often in contrast to like a regular game where you kind of build every single piece of the game, you build, if there's a marketplace, you build the marketplace yourself. If there's, um, you know, gameplay, you build all the gameplay and the assets just kind of live within the game. In contrast, these new games, um, they would like sell their assets, um, but people wouldn't have a, a place to resell them. So um, that was really exciting for us because we saw these games coming online and we kind of scrambled to support them on our marketplace. and. What was cool is that over time, you know, at first, sometimes we'd have to do some heavy lifting to make sure that the game items showed up perfectly on our site, um, you know, like talk to the developers, see if their contract was implementing something wrong. But over time, um, uh, all the all the smart contracts representing these items became more and more standardized. So now anyone can come along and have a digital asset um, or an NFT and use our marketplace to buy and sell without ever having to have a high touch experience with us. Um, so yeah, that was kind of a natural evolution from seeing this sort of first use case around this one particular game and then um, you know seeing other projects come online that needed a, a marketplace. Got it. So can you give some more examples of some of the other assets that are on OpenSea now? You started with CryptoKitties. Now, obviously, there's way more than that. So what are some, uh, how, how has OpenSea evolved over time? And then what are some of the most exciting assets that are being sold on OpenSea today? Yeah, so today there's, uh, in, on OpenSea, we break things down into five or six different categories, although there's probably more categories that you could come up with. 
Um, the first is art. So um, art has really taken off, and we've talked a bit about this since CryptoKitties. And what's interesting about art is that it's really simple, right? You just upload a piece of digital art and then you put it on sale and the value of that art is just kind of related to the provenance or the history and the creator of that particular piece of art. So it's a really simple, compelling use case and it's it's almost a no-brainer for digital artists that want to be able to sell their work. Um, the second, of course, is domain names. So this is where unstoppable domains comes into play. Um, so these are crypto-powered domains that probably your viewers are already familiar with, but what's exciting is that you can trade them on OpenSea as well. So you actually own these domains on the blockchain. You can go and connect your wallet and then um, put a put a domain name on sale. And there's sort of this emerging early economy around people um, uh, speculating or, or uh, that are interested in, in making a transaction to buy a particular domain that they want to put their decentralized website on. Um, the third category is virtual worlds. So virtual worlds are these um, game type experiences where inside of the game, you own a piece of virtual land and you can build whatever you want on top of that land. So if anyone uh, ever played Minecraft or maybe Second Life, um, those were these games where you could uh, have a whole economy inside of the game, right? You could have clothing, you could have avatars, and there, were, there was exchange of these assets. And what's interesting about these new types of virtual worlds is that instead of it being confined to a specific game um, or a specific application, you can actually go and trade the land in that world or the stuff in that world on a third-party marketplace like OpenSea. Um, and then probably the last category to talk about is sort of this like collectible trading card um, category of things. So here is, we've touched a little bit on the NBA Top Shot project from Dapper Labs. Um, there's also uh, Gods Unchained, which is another trading card game, so rare. Um, but basically, these are these collectibles that are sort of almost a hybrid between the art use case and the gaming use case, where they're collectible items. Um, just and you know, some people collect them for the sake of collecting, um, but then other people collect them because they're using them inside of the game. Um, so that's so yeah, it's a really a really diverse ecosystem. Um, what's crazy about non fungible tokens is you can kind of represent whatever you want to represent with them, um, and so the design space is you know, pretty much unlimited. Yeah, that's super cool. So it sounds like the categories of users you have right now are pretty much gamers, collectors, and maybe crypto fans or people that are, you know, more knowledgeable about the space. How do you see OpenSea evolving in the future? Like, what are some things that you see being sold on OpenSea in the future? And how long would you, if you had to guess, how long would you say it'll be until, uh, quote unquote, normal people are on OpenSea or just the masses are all using OpenSea? Yeah, uh, well, that's a good question around the masses. Um, I guess what what I think may evolve uh, over the next while, um, we're already seeing sort of interesting signs of selling um, tokenized physical assets on OpenSea. So an example here is let's say that um, actually we, we this is something that we've we have supported on OpenSea um, is someone can tokenize a bottle of wine. They can have the custody of that bottle of wine, but the asset, the digital asset can be traded around many different times before it's redeemed 
for the actual physical thing. Um, what's interesting about that is you can have this really vibrant, digitally native market for an asset that is tied uh, ultimately to something physical. Um, and so you could imagine that, you know, maybe you uh, decide to trade your rare sneakers uh, on um, on OpenSea because you can trade them around digitally before you actually ever need to take custody and you, you could have a much more efficient marketplace there. So that gets into the territory of more traditional marketplaces today like uh, StockX um, and Goat and that are kind of breaking off chunks of, of eBay. Now, I'm not sure how long um, it'll be until OpenSea gets into that territory. I think we found a really interesting niche with these very digitally native assets. And we're, we're actually really excited about more and more regular people experiencing digital ownership um, because it is, it is a new phenomenon, but um, it's a pretty exciting one um, when you get deeper into it. So, I mean, part of the, I think there's two possible worlds. One is that, you know, maybe regular people won't be coming on to OpenSea until you can trade regular things. Um, or the other world is, uh, maybe regular people come onto OpenSea because they get excited about these new weird crypto things eventually. <laughs> so um, I don't know. I, I, I think uh, I could see a mixture of both uh, of those happening, actually. Yeah, wait. So I want to go back to the the sneakers or the wine example real quick. So, okay. So what you're saying is basically if I have like a super rare bottle of wine that's worth a lot of money and I want to sell it, what I can do is turn that into a digital token and sort of sell that around or pass that around on OpenSea. Like I, I, I might post it on OpenSea and you see it and you're like, oh yeah, this bottle of wine is like really good and I want it. So you buy it for a certain amount, but then you try to sell that again. At what point does somebody else take ownership of my bottle of wine? Right. So there's the current state of affairs and then there's maybe future state of affairs. The current state of affairs is um, there's there was a company uh, called Wiv that that experimented with this and they held the wine but they they turned it into tokens and they put it on sale. You could buy it and you could do one of two things. You could either just hold the token and then resell the token for some other price, um, or you could redeem that token for the actual bottle of wine. Now, once you redeem that token and you have the rare bottle of wine maybe you could set up a system where you can send it back and then tokenize it again. But at least in the simple version of this, it was kind of over at that point, right? Um, but what's interesting is you could have these, these digital representations bought and sold many different times just for pure speculation purposes before it's actually um, redeemed for the physical asset. And looking in the future, you know, you, you could start to think about more sophisticated ways of doing physical transactions through the blockchain. So uh, people have, I think there's a um, project called Erasure Bay that um, has this kind of concept where you will stake tokens. Um, so you'll basically say like, okay, as long as I actually send you the physical asset, um, I'm sort of depositing this amount of capital. And if I don't actually send you it, then I, then I will lose that. Um, so there's other, there's, sophisticated ways you can do physical trades. We're, we're not really in that business at the moment. Um, we're more interested in, you know, once it's become digital and once you know that it represents a certain thing, can you trade it around digitally a lot of different times? Um, but certainly I think maybe, maybe one day we could facilitate like peer to peer physical transfers as well. 
I think, I think that's a pretty cool use case for like Kickstarters or like sneakers, basically anything you buy like presale, right? Because then like if you bought a Kickstarter thing and then like a month later, you're like, actually, I don't want this. Now you're just kind of stuck or you got to ask for a refund, but maybe you could resell the Kickstarter item. And then sneakers, I have, I, I know people who are sneaker heads and they like sit there with a bot and like they just try to buy that, that sneaker and they can't always get it, you know, on the day that the sneakers released, but they would love to just be able to go on a secondary market and pick up a digital essentially coupon to be able to redeem for that sneaker, you know, whenever the sneaker is available. So, uh, yeah, I think that's pretty cool. Thanks for sharing. That's super cool. Um, so I guess like, what is the market is OpenSea pretty unique in its space or do you guys have competitors and what, what are they doing? What are you guys doing differently from them? Yeah. So over the last six months, um, the space has definitely, uh, sort of grown in size and we do have, folks that are either like doing roughly similar things that we're doing or kind of um, tangentially related or kind of in the similar markets. One note that I'll say is that um, the space is like, I would say uniquely collaborative, um, probably even more so than kind of if you if you look at the early internet as a good analogy for where crypto is today, I think the collaboration and sort of um, interconnectedness of all of the different applications that are working in the space is extremely high because at the end of the day, the blockchain is a coordination layer. Um, and so for example, like pretty much all of the companies that, you know, we, um, would potentially consider kind of our competitors will have shared chat channels with, will constantly be coordinating, you know, we'll link to their site, they'll link to our site. Um, they'll have assets that you can sell on OpenSea. We'll have assets that you can sell on their site that all, all of these things are very connected. Um, but I would say what distinguishes uh, OpenSea from our competitors is we've always been um, very horizontally focused. So we've always um, allowed you to trade all sorts of different things on OpenSea. We haven't really as much um, focused on like a very specific vertical. Now we are doing some things recently in the creator and, and art space that are a little more tailored towards that market. But in general, we've always tried to build tools that um, any project can use, whether it's a piece of art, a, a domain name, virtual world. Um, and I think that has been um, a really exciting feature for, or a really exciting piece of the product for our users is that they know they can go on to OpenSea and you know find what they're looking for. We uh, aggregate prices across all a bunch of different markets. So we're um, always trying to find the user the best deal for an asset. Um, and I think that will become more and more important as the market expands. That's awesome. Do you guys have anything exciting, new, cool plan for 2021? Yeah, the biggest thing that we're, um, we haven't officially announced but is in the works is um, we're expanding to other blockchains. Um, so we'll be able to support uh, uh, chains in addition to Ethereum. And the reason that's exciting is that uh, Ethereum right now is uh, limited in its uh, ability to cheaply process transactions. So um, if you want to buy and sell something on OpenSea, you typically have to pay a pretty large sum of money just to facilitate that. Um, and so we think that uh, other blockchains and, and other complementary scaling solutions to Ethereum that are coming out over the next three months or maybe even have already hit the market uh, are really going to enable 
a new set of use cases for NFTs that aren't just these sort of high value, you know, $100, $1,000, sometimes $10,000 assets that aren't necessarily as accessible to a more mainstream user. Um, so that's a big focus for us. And then the other area that we're focusing on is we are um, making it easier for people to create brand new NFTs on OpenSea. So I mentioned before, we have a simple collection manager tool, which uh, allows anyone to come on to OpenSea, upload uh, whatever asset, whatever file, and immediately tokenize um, and turn it into a tradable, non-fungible token. So we're making investments in um, just making that process easier for creatives and people who want to experiment with the space. That's awesome. Cool. Well, Devin, the next thing I want to do is I've got a fun little activity I like to play with all the guests where I do a deep dive into your Twitter account, which you actually have a very interesting Twitter. You tweet about a lot of things and a lot of philosophical tweets that uh, I've pulled up. But before we do that, Matt, do you have any other questions for Devin? Uh, I'm ready for the, uh, the explain your tweet game. The Twitter dive? All right. Yeah. All right, cool. So <laughs> I've done a deep dive in your Twitter. I'm just going to pull out some tweets. I'll, I'll read you the tweet. I'll tell you when it was posted. And then I'll give you a chance to sort of explain what you were talking about. All right. Sure. Okay. So on January 12th of this year, you tweeted, considering declaring Telegram DM bankruptcy. <laughs> What's that all about? Yeah. So, well, for those of you who don't know Telegram, I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with it, but it's a messenger app. Um, and you, uh, it's kind of like any messenger app, Facebook messenger, Slack, these types of things. Um, the thing, and yeah, I like telegram. Um, but there are certain things I do not like about it. Uh, and the biggest one is the way that they, uh, order your messages. So, um, if anyone has a fix for this, let me know. I've, I've looked and I, I haven't looked recently, but, uh, last time I checked, there's not a good fix. Um, if you have a new DM, uh, it it's really hard to find it because you have to scroll down to where there's this blue bubble um, that indicates that you have an unread message. So it's it, long story short, it just makes it really, really hard to find unread messages. <laughs> and so this tweet was sort of like, okay, I might just give up on trying to respond to my Telegram messages. And the other thing is that that's really annoying is when you mark a message as unread, it scrolls you back to the top. Um, so you can't, you're like, you go down you're like, okay, I'm going to look at this message. I don't want to respond. I'm going to mark it as run unread. And then you start from the top again. Um, so that was my frustration with that. Got it. Got it. So if any, if anyone's listening who works at telegram or has control over any of that, go and fix yeah. your UX UI or else Devin's getting off your platform. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All right, cool. Uh, next tweet. This is from January 7th of this year. You tweeted, speak your mind and you'll say what you think. Speak from your soul and you'll say exactly what they need to hear. That is very philosophical. <laughs> yeah, that was a thought that I think I had while I was meditating. Um, but it was, it's basically this idea that, um, you know, oftentimes it's tempting to, when you're, when you're talking to someone, it's like, yeah, you want to say, you want to generally be open and honest and, you know, say roughly what you're thinking. Obviously there are circumstances where that doesn't make sense. Um, but I think, you know, that's a, being honest and transparent is one layer of excellence. Um, but I think the layer above that is actually, 
you know, thing is is sort of feeling like what is the right thing to say in this circumstance given, you know, like what the situation and um and like your relationship with the other person. Um so often I think it can be tempting to like want to explain exactly your perspective and make sh- it's sort of an a, like ego reduction type thing. Like instead of trying to explain your exact perspective on something or like try to communicate everything about how you see something, you can kind of feel into, well, what is the thing that like this person needs to hear at this moment? Even if it's not, even if they're not going to see everything the same way that I see things, um, what is the thing that they need to need to hear and even and also even if that doesn't like satisfy my craving for them to understand my perspective if that makes sense yeah I love that I feel like everybody listening needs to just pause this podcast right now and think on that before you continue (laughs) totally all right next the next tweet the next tweet I personally love because patience is not one of my virtues and I can admit that but on December 31st New Year's Eve you tweeted impatience can be a virtue Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, so (laughs) by the way, none, I'll say that none of my philosophical tweets ever get a lot of love, um, (laughs) relative to my NFT tweets. Whenever I tweet something about NFTs, like it's great, but, but these tweets like get like (laughs) very, very little activity. Well, I'm going to go through and like all of them and listeners, you should as well. I love these. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I, I think I was thinking about, I, I also struggle with patience as well. And in fact, um, that tweet was uh, like I, I think that in general patience is a really strong virtue, and it's something that I would say I like err on the side of being too impatient. Um, but I do think that like the there, you know, I think there's this. Um, I can't remember what book this was in, but uh, I think this guy had a conversation with Peter Thiel. Um, And one of the questions like Peter Thiel would ask was like, okay, what's your 10 year plan, right? What are you going to do in 10 years? And then the follow up is like, okay, how would you do that in six months? Um, And so this question of like, okay, are you planning way too far in advance and actually not thinking about how you could accelerate your roadmap for various things and just constantly feeling like there, you know, there's a balance, right? You don't want to constantly feel like, there's this fuel on under your or fuel on the fire. Um, you know, you don't want to feel like you're rushing things. Uh, you do want to make long-term plans. Um, but at the same time, um, you also want to be incredibly ambitious and have a sense of urgency around the things you want to accomplish. Otherwise, um, you know, you'll just never accomplish them. So I, I think that tweet was sort of encapsulated the thought that there's two sides of that coin. I like it. I like it. All right. Well, that's it, Devin. That wasn't too painful. Hopefully I didn't go too far back into your Twitter history and pull tweets from years ago. But I I do think you have very interesting tweets and a lot of people in the space just tweet about crypto and Bitcoin and things like that. But you actually do have just general philosophical tweets that everybody can go and read and, you know, enjoy and and think some deep thoughts on. So thank you for that. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, before you go, Devin, I really appreciate your time, but tell people where they can connect with you personally if they want to reach out to you, where they can learn more about OpenSea and also point people in the direction of once they sign up for OpenSea, what are some of the first things that they can do or just easy, easy and exciting things that they can do initially on OpenSea? 
Sure. So uh, for me, you can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash defenser. For OpenSea, our, our Twitter is Twitter, our handle is OpenSea. Um, and then our website is OpenSea.io. In terms of uh, exciting things you can do when you first get started, um, you'll need a MetaMask or some crypto wallet to get started. So make sure you install that. It's not too much of a hassle, but it is your first, uh, probably if, if you're brand new, it's probably your first entry point into the crypto space. Um, and once you do that, uh, you can create a collection for free today um, and go and mint your own NFTs and uh, you know start putting them on sale, that type of thing. Um, and then you can also just kind of explore and see what is interesting. So um, if you go to our rankings page, you can get a sense of what are the top non-fungible tokens that are being traded um, across different categories. Um, and you know, you can, you can kind of find projects that might be interesting to you. So, uh, some of the projects I mentioned here, obviously unstoppable domains, uh, virtual world projects like crypto voxels and Decentraland are all, um, really awesome projects that you can browse around on and, and learn about on OpenSea. Awesome. Yeah. Devin, thanks for coming here. And I just want to say to yeah. everyone listening out there, it's people like Devin who are impatient and they try to make things happen in six months that should take 10 years that are going to get blockchain into your hands sooner rather than later. So Devin from us at Unstoppable and everybody in the community, thanks for the work that you do. Uh, and very exciting to keep following along with what you guys are building at OpenSea. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much, Devin. Thanks listeners for tuning in. Thanks, Matt, for being an awesome co-host. And we'll be back again soon with another episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. If something I've said today resonated with you, please rate, subscribe, download the podcast, and share this episode on social media with your network. This helps other people find us. And remember, the fun doesn't have to stop when the episode ends. We can continue the conversation on Twitter by tweeting your questions, thoughts, or ideas to me at Matthew E. Gould. We look forward to chatting with you, and thanks again for listening. Thanks.